I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. This is episode 92, and this week we will be reading Roger Zelazny's The Hand of Oberon. With me, as always, is one of those princes of amber, Jeff Goad. Hello, hello, here I am. And this week, we're very honored to have special guests all the way from the land down under, Chantel Benjamin. Hello, Chantel. Hi. Hi. Hey, Hi. Chantel. Hey, Chantel. <laughs> Now, Chantel, you are a uh, live streamer, uh, specifically uh, three shows, but Lost Worlds is one of them, which is on Twitter. I mean, not Twitter, on Twitch. Lost World Archives. Lost World <laughs> Archives. You're a designer of an upcoming game, Omens Rising, and you are a practicing psychologist. So that's a very interesting set of backgrounds to work from. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So Chantel, we always like to ask people sort of secret origin stories. Um, so how did you get into gaming initially? I ended up gaming because uh, an ex-boyfriend of mine played, oh, he played not D&D, he played uh, Dark Heresy. Um, mm, okay. And I would sit and I would watch the story unfolding and I would get very interested in the story unfolding. And so at one point the game master pulled me aside and said, so you've been watching for too long and it's time that you played. <laughs> Good so, game master. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so here is, uh, here's the book. Here's how you design a character. Here's how you build a character. Um, come up with something and I'll give you some information. So of course, in traditional femme style, I created a rogue um, <laughs> or an assassin specifically uh, who the game master then proceeded to give me all of the information about the campaign. Um, <laughs> so my first, my first scene was here's seeing, your binder. Yeah, here's your binder. Here's all of the information that you never thought you needed, um, <laughs> and you still probably don't need. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, and my first scene was sitting across from my ex, uh, having stolen into his uh, his character's chambers, and. From that point, my my character and his character had this entirely antagonistic relationship, and I thought, you know what? This is perfect. I love this. <laughs> Everything about this is great. Right, right. And had you already uh, had a performance background at that point, or was this something that sort of those two things came together, the gaming and the performance? Um, I was an actor first okay. uh, and then realized that role-play gaming is – long form acting and the story doesn't end and in fact mm -hmm. it keeps going forever and that's the best thing about <laughs> role play mm -hmm. and you talk about getting this giant binder now when you're in these uh live streams how much of it is um you know system dependent and how much of that is just drawing on you know the actual you know the scene as it's being played out mm. um it's a little of both if i'm playing a one-shot there is no binder. There is no information. I will write a paragraph for a character and find the character while I'm playing them. So they'll, I'll give them an accent. I'll give them a little bit of uh, time 
uh, in my mind. Um, I'll mm-hmm. know vaguely what they look like. I'll know vaguely how they move and then decide everything else while I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Um, for campaigns, it becomes more of a it becomes more of a binder situation. But even then, I like to discover the character while I'm playing the game rather than decide who they are before I start. Same, yeah. yeah. And you have a lot of time to play games uh, offline as well, or is it primarily your your gaming is primarily? I mean, this COVID the COVID <laughs> era, but pre COVID, uh, did you have time to play at the table as well, or is it primarily within the, the medium of um, you know streaming or or online? Now it's primarily stream focused, but to me, streaming doesn't mean it sort of has the same effect because you're, you're still playing for an audience. The audience is the people that you're playing with. doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you're playing, like doesn't matter where you're playing or, or why you're, you're, if you're making a joke, you're making a joke for the audience and the audience is your friends. Mm-hmm. And what about the days when you're just not quite feeling on, you know, as a performer, you have to, you know, <laughs> you know, break a leg, suck it up. Right. And then if you're, but oh, yeah. if you're playing more just around the table, then you're like, okay, I'm just going to be a little quieter today and let everyone else take the spotlight a little bit. So Unlawful Disorder, which is what's played on Lost World's Archive, is um, it's a game that because, you know, the east coast of the US is apparently gaming time, it's um, <laughs> it's a, an 11 o'clock p.m. game for Australia. Um, so we start playing at bedtime and we <laughs> play through the early morning in the US. Um, wow. And so... There are days where you've gone through an entire day at work and you've kind of got home and you're like, oh, oh, help, help, please. And you start out really quiet or you just start out making stupid life jokes and Mm -hmm. ultimately end up rolling into character and rolling into this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. And sometimes the best games come out of really not wanting to play that day. Right. <laughs> I suppose at a certain point, if you're tired enough, it'll break down certain in- inhibitions and log jams, and then you'll just be, oh, okay, I'm here now, right? Exactly, exactly that. And how about your background in uh, reading speculative fiction? Uh, is that something that you did a lot as, when you were younger, or to this day, or is not not as much part of your you know your habit and routine? Um. So here's the thing: What do you mean by speculative fiction? Oh, broadly, uh, it could be fantasy, it could be science fiction, it could be even, I'm, I'm very open, it could be mm. whatever your definition of it is, it could just be something that envisions a better world that is just literally otherwise mundane, you know? Yeah. Or, not, or not a better world. <laughs> or the worst world. Or just a better world. A world. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, fantastic fiction, weird fiction, horror, sci-fi fantasy, things like that. Mm. Um, I've been reading it since high school. I found... The Redemption of Alphalus on a shelf and went, that looks like a pretty book. Let's read it. And that was the beginning of the end for me, really. (laughs) (laughs) And is there a specific book and or a specific author who has really kind of inspired your gaming style? My gaming style, I would say probably um, David and Lee Eddings. Um, that would have been, they were my original fantasy sort of understanding. Um, but N.K. Jemison, absolutely. Um, and oddly, all of the plays that I've read over time. So Shakespeare, big, mm-hmm. big one. Yeah, Shakespeare's a huge one. Anytime that yeah. I've read a play, I've just kind of gone, oh, yeah, that's how a character would react. And so that that's what I'll do. 
<laughs> I think Keanu was mentioning last week, the other week too. Shakespeare was also. She was, yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. She was mentioning Shakespeare. She was saying specifically Macbeth, she found mm. has been a big inspiration on her on her game design. Oh, yeah. But yeah, and NK Jemison is also a gamer. I did not know I that. I didn't know that. That's so yep. cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was actually just reading an interview with her, and and there's a she has a very sad um, um, intro to D and D story because apparently the first time she played D and D, she wanted to play a paladin, and she was told that a black girl can't play a paladin. Oh man, Ugh. yeah, yeah, typical. Um, she's in in her interview, she said that thankfully, like you know, every other gaming experience she's had since then has been very different than that first one. Yeah, but. You, but that can't help but color your your initial experience. I feel yeah. like if you're a woman over 30, your your first gaming experience was probably a sad experience. And then now it's changed yeah. a lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm 32. So it's I had a good I had a good intro and then got invited to games by people that knew me and know what mm-hmm. I'm like. And I don't I don't really I don't suffer fools lightly. So <laughs> it there would have been pushback immediately. There you good go. For you. all right so yep this week we're reading roger zelasny's hand of oberon uh which editions are we working with everybody well i've got the um avon paperback here with our ron wolotsky cover um and and that's what hoy has as well um hoy my my price tag in the top right hand corner says a dollar 75 what does yours say mine says a buck 50 Okay, so yours is a, an earlier printing than mine. Mm-hmm. It's, in fact, a fourth printing from, I guess, 1977. Hard to say. Okay, mine is a fifth printing. How about mm. you, Chantel? I have the Kindle version, oh, um, okay. which is 2016 with a cover image uh, by Gary McCluskey. Um, I'm assuming very many reprint. <laughs> exactly what does your cover look like um it is a burgundy with uh oh there you go yeah hello mister great one hello sir (laughs) (laughs) excuse me while i show my sword right (laughs) is that a flaming sword or are you just happy to see me (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and here we've got on ours we've got corwin who's walking majestically down the pattern and then we've got the little griffin yep, right wick, by the side. Wick, the oh, I like griffin. those more. Yeah. <laughs> and this, Why did they change uh, it? Right, right. I know, right? And it's interesting because, this, I mean, the, this series, they did a very unified graphic design, but they really privileged the typeface, and the art was like a little small here, which is kind of mm. interesting choice. Yeah, and unusual for the time, but very kind of forward-thinking. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I'm a big fan of um, books that say, okay, the art is beautiful and detailed, but you don't need a lot of it to highlight the importance of the book. There you go. Big fan of that. Yep. All right. <laughs> and do we have a high Gaxian word, Jeff? Uh, we sure do. Our word today is... Occlude. Occlude. And I came across Occlude on page 116 of the uh, Avon paperback. And here it says... I bent my mind toward the the way away, and clouds occluded the sun. And occlude means to stop, close up, or obstruct. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So here we are in the library. 
Right. Chantal, what was your take on this book? So I came in from a really interesting perspective, which is that I haven't read the rest of the series. Hmm. And so what I read was a lot, a lot, a lot of exposition. Um, Mm -hmm. As somebody who's read the rest of the series so far, it's also a lot, a lot of exposition. (laughs) Right. That one particular chapter. Yeah. That was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a question for you. So there's this entire chapter of of backstory kind of catching us up on the series. Mm. And while I was reading it, I'm like, I don't know if Chantelle has read the rest of these. But I'm like, but if she hasn't, I'm going to be interested in finding out if this chapter was helpful or if it just confused her more. So it kind of was neither of those things. It, it didn't help, but it didn't hinder. What it okay. did do is give me a moment to go, but do I want to be reading this? <laughs> just just from a density perspective. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. A lot of info being dumped. Yeah, it was right. a it was a it was a law dump. It was a big right. here, take all of ev- take take this entire world. Right. Here uh-huh. you go. Here's your binder. Yeah, here's your binder. <laughs> here's your binder good luck um you've got the rest of the book to go but i hope you understood how we got here and i was like okay cool. <laughs> i understand the present day thank you um but i feel like that that kind of thread of uh exposition became a theme of the book the whole book kind of every time we would reach somewhere new we would have more of it mm-hmm. and it feels like the book ultimately got bogged down by it mm-hmm. from from my my reading was just okay i have all of this information fantastic what are we doing with it okay something small we've done a right. little thing okay we go somewhere else we have more exposition we have a lot of it okay what are we going to do with it something small so right. i would i would say that the book that not I mean, it's very much in the style of of every TTRPG. A lot is explained, but very little actually happens practically. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Did you think um, it was interesting because you mentioned um, more information becomes available, but very little is acted upon. But there's several distinct times when Corwin comes upon a piece of information and he has the opportunity to present it to one of the other characters, but decides mm-hmm. to hold back on it. He's very withholding, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And you think that was purely a narrative or that, that there was some other actual, uh, you know, psychological element to that, you know, that he's a very withholding personality or controlling personality, you know? It's interesting you say that because there's a lot of times when he'll hold information back, but then someone else has the piece that's missing, so so it's almost as though I don't know it, it's it's I think by the time you've put together all of the individual pieces of this book it's a strange character that doesn't he rarely explains sorry I'm jumping around tiny tiny half sentences um he <laughs> he rarely displays emotion and emotion is rarely displayed and rarely described from a narrative perspective um it's really interesting that he tells no one anything. Mm-hmm. Um, from a psychological perspective, I, I get it. In a world where you can't be sure that anyone is who they say they are and a world where you've come from Earth and now you're here and as much as you would like to let go of the idea that 
you know, Earth is not a fantasy world. It kind of is a fantasy world. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a different kind, but it is one. Um, and I think those, those behaviours that we have in our world still will carry over to fantasy, and I think that's kind of what this book shows, mm-hmm. is that you, you kind of can't escape who you are despite the shifting personalities. You can't escape who you are in any one place. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, he definitely has uh, trust issues. He has apparent responses to trauma, right? I guess mm-hmm. having his eyes put out in the past. And oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's had his he's had his identity and his memory stolen from him on more than one occasion. Right. He doesn't know who to trust, and right, right. Mm-hmm. all of this stuff is at play. Right. But uh, Chantel, I agree with you completely about how we re- got really bogged down in way too much detail in this book. Have you read any other Roger Zelazny? I haven't. No. Before coming to this project, I had not read any Roger Zelazny either. But um, the first thing by him we read was a book called Jack of Shadows, which is a very slim volume, and it is not a part of a series. It is a standalone book. And I loved Jack of Shadows. I thought it was like electrifying and exhilarating and a fascinating book. And the Chronicles of Amber, I mean, this is an iconic series that people, Mm. I've heard people talk Mm. about my entire life about how I've been needing to read these. And honestly, like it, it hasn't really been um, resonating with me a lot. And of all of this, the books that we've been reading that are part of a series, this is the one that every time a few months later, we pick up a new one of these, I can barely remember what happened in the last one. Like it just, it doesn't seem to stick with me. That's interesting. Um, Is it, what do you think is the cause for that? Like, what do you think sort of breaks you out of it? I think part of it is, for one thing, we have so many characters who are all so similar mm. that it's hard to keep who is who straight. And on top of it, like a lot of their names are even similar. Like <laughs> there's brand and there's random. And then so I've, I'm like, which wait is this the good brand or is this the bad rand because there's brand and then there's random mm-hmm. um and then in addition to that we have all these other b names too there's also benedict and there's blaze and and then even though we have almost no women the few women we do have are like fiona and flora and yeah <laughs> so it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like he he only had apparently like you know a few letters to work with when picking right. names i guess well <laughs> and to pick up on Chantel's point they're all behaving in these sort of very um Oh, I won't say maladaptive. They're adaptive to their particular situation, but maladaptive in sort of normal life, <laughs> right? Yes. Behaviors because of the paranoia and lack of trust that they have so that you don't get to see their true selves because they're all just putting forward that same face of, of you know, being schemers and what have you. So yeah. uh, except for maybe Gerard because he's so strong and nobody can beat him, you know? So, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like the only one, and I'm awful with names, so I'm just looking for Vial. Mm, yeah. I feel like she is probably the the only one who possibly because she can't see so she doesn't need to live by those social rules but right. she's the only one that I kind of went oh you're kind of edging around f- fully functioning <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> you're flirting with it <laughs> you're, 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 you're close you're close to right. the idea of fully functioning and i appreciate that thank you <laughs> <laughs> and she's quite perceptive right she sees all these things that are going yeah. on with the other characters uh yeah. possibly because again uh she's not directly part of the game she's no threat to anybody directly and therefore she gets to take that role and actually live a, a, something that resembles a life as opposed to yeah. do, you know playing <laughs> 
<laughs> Instead of politics games, yeah. Yeah. I will say that although I felt really kind of bogged down by a lot of the kind of repetition of us walking the pattern 45 times and spending <laughs> 20 pages on it each time. Mm. Um, but I will say I thought like the the last few pages were electrifying. Like I thought the whole scene where mm. um, he's walking, the where, where, where Benedict is walking the pattern and... Um, and I have to look at who's bad and who's good. Brand is bad. <laughs> yeah. um, and yes. Brand shows up and is like talking to him and like edging his way closer. And he's got the he's got the the jewel. And then like the whole thing where he's like frozen, but then his arm comes to life. Um, and then like the the big twist at the end, revealing that like Ganelon is their dad. I yes. thought all of that was really exciting and done very well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think. That's what I wanted from the whole book. I feel like the, I feel yes. like the story <laughs> right. is deep enough and and rich enough, and I think the world definitely is rich enough mm-hmm. to have had all of that, to have that kind of tension hold for the whole book. Yeah, I think even the first scene with the pattern was was quite effective too. The yes. first time that Brand and and Corwin are in the pattern, um, just because like they both know that they need to achieve this thing, but the thing that Corrin wants to do will be the worst possible thing that he could do, which is kill Brand on the pattern. Right. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. And it's so, funny though. With that first one, the note I wrote down was high stakes hopscotch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause like, he's just like trying to get close enough to him while he's walking the patterns so and he can like stab him. And yeah. I'm just imagining this like elaborate hopscotch uh, <laughs> on the playground. Right. Right. And- <laughs> well, I mean, think about how much it meant to you when you were seven or eight. That was that was killer stakes, mm. you know, when you were. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or or playing like the floor is lava. Yeah. Yep. Oh right. yeah. <laughs> we do not. We do not want that. So yeah. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought the, the scene with Dorkin was particularly good too. When he he visits mm. his grandfather and his grandfather sort of recognizes him, doesn't recognize him. It's also laying groundwork for the the ultimate reveal of of Ganelon as being their father. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, what did you think of that reveal? Did he play fair? Uh, did Roger Zelazny play fair and provide the right number of clues during the main text? It's a fine line to walk where you, it's providing enough information, but not so much that you get there pages and pages and pages early. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it, it dropped in at the right moment for me. Mm-hmm. Like it dropped in. I was like, yes, yes, it is time to make more coffee. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And a good twist is one that the audience understands at the same time as the character. Yes. As long as it's not totally out of left field and we're just introducing a character that none of us have seen or heard of before. It also has to make sense. And like looking back at some of the clues, like there are some good ones because I'm looking at page 25 and this is in the big recap where he's telling us all the things that had happened before And he says, en route, I had passed through the land of Lorraine, there encountering my old exiled Avalonian general Ganelon or someone very much like him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's one hint. And then on page 97, when um, Ganelon ends up communicating to um, to Corwin with the Trumps, um, he says, where did you get a hold of a set of Trumps and learn how to use them? Yes. And he said, I picked up a pack from a case in the library a while back, thought it was a good idea to have a way of getting in touch with you in a hurry. As for using them, I just did what, what you and the others seem to do, which is study the Trumps, think about it, concentrate on getting in touch with that person. Right. Uh, yeah. So, like, he's, he's got an answer. <laughs> right, right. And the yeah. other clue yeah. that would 
that would not have been in this book, but is a clue to the from the whole series is Gerard is by far the strongest of all the brothers, to the point where he's almost superhuman. And he's already beaten up Corwin to a pulp in the previous book. And so how does Ganon, who is actually a mere human, actually beat up Gerard, right? And yes. it's, well, maybe Corwin, you know, softened him up a little bit for him. But no, Ganon <laughs> does such a good he job. He listened to Gerlin. Right. Ganon beats Gerard unconscious, right? How is that possible? Right. And I, at the time, yeah. I'm like, okay, that seems kind of, that seems like Zelazny doesn't remember what he was doing. And then, oh, okay, now it makes sense at the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's allowed to make a mistake if the mistake turns out not to be a mistake. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the DM's credo, right? As a DM. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I meant to do that. You can make a mistake, just tie it into the rest of the story. It's I meant fine. to fall off my chair backwards. <laughs> yeah. So also we discovered that, um, so Corwin is talking about Dara, and he's talking about how amazing she is at fencing and lovemaking. And mm-hmm. as we know, Dara is his brother's great-granddaughter, um, and then there's also the moment where he's talking about how, like, if only his father wasn't so against his siblings marrying, because he would have married Flora in a second. Right. Well, that, was, uh, uh, Ju- that was Julian, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That was Julian. You're right. right. That was Julian who would have married Flora. Yeah. Um, how did all of this, like, totally casual incest land with you? You know, it's really funny that I didn't think much of it, because, <laughs> but but largely because, one, it's a fantasy world. Like, you 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 get that. Like you, you kind of, you get it. I don't know how to explain you get it. You get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it happens. But there's also uh-huh. the the case of um, in historical text, which I've done a lot of reading around for plays and in Shakespeare, all of those behaviours accidentally happen all the time. Like, you mm-hmm. know, and especially in Greek mythology, you've got a mm-hmm. lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, as as long as it stays in a fantasy world... Right. Um, we're, we're okay with that. Right. Um, as long as it's also not actually ha- happening. I think you're exactly right. And especially since you mentioned Greek mythology, it's thematically ap- appropriate because this, these Amberites are literally sort of like their echoes are like become our mythology. Right. And yes. so they, they are sort of stand-ins for the various Greek gods and other gods. And, and it gets translated to our, our present day reality as their, you know, and then also, I don't think their mom's have... a unicorn, right? But yeah, <laughs> and... yeah, that was a fun reveal. Right, I don't know how I feel about uh... being a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it's funny that he actually literally mentions Freud in here. I mean, obviously, Oberon is like the quintessential bad dad, right? So yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't think that Zelazny has a particular um, a particular fetish, incest fetish, whereas some other people like Heinlein, I think, has a little bit of an incest fetish. And some of these oh. other major, yeah, oh, um, which which uh, Zelazny does not. I think it's just like it's thematically appropriate, so it's in here, you know. Yeah, I've only read Stranger to Strange Land, but um, I wasn't aware that Heinlein had a whole like incest thing. Well, doesn't he have like, um, oh, it's okay to marry again? His his great 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 granddaughter descendant in Stranger to Strange Land. It's one of those things. Oh, Lazarus I don't remember. Long or like has some, some some situation where he's like, you know, his like tenth generation removed. You know, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I don't know. You know what what the technical like how many generations sideways and downwards it has to go before it's not technically you know incest I mean, anymore but <laughs> blood blood relative becomes incest yeah. technically but right. it, it i suppose it depends on how how that person perceives it like if they're if they're looking at it and going yes this person is related to me then it becomes very obviously incest whereas if right. they're like oops 
yeah. then <laughs> <laughs> right. I met you in a bar and I didn't realize like that's <laughs> that's not deliberate incest right. it's sort of incest by oops Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Incest by oops. I like yeah. that. <laughs> and then, you know, so looking at this from a gaming perspective, have have you have you um played and or or, or heard of Amber Diceless? No. So there is a famous RPG from the 80s called Amber Diceless. And it was like the first like fully diceless RPG system that at least I'm aware of. And it takes place in the Chronicles of Amber. And um, it was very much like one of the kind of the proto story games. And I'm curious, like having read one of these stories, are Ooh. you at all intrigued at trying something like Amber Diceless? Or you're just like, eh, I'll stick to what I'm playing. I am a big fan of any game that uh, focuses heavily on story. Um, so Amber Diceless actually sounds quite interesting, especially with this world. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I will I will loudly proclaim is that this world is really detailed and very clear. Um, even if the characters don't necessarily tell anyone about the world or tell anyone about what's going on in terms of what's going on in the story, the actual world of it was very clear and the, the, there was sort of a, it wasn't a patchwork of concepts. It was a tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so engaging with the world of this, of this book to, or these books to, uh, string together a story would be quite enjoyable, I think. Um, since you mentioned the world, would it be interesting to you to continue to play within the context of this sort of dysfunctional royal family? Or would you be like, hey, I'd be really more interested in like the uh, upstairs, downstairs aspect of this world and like like to know what like, the butler of the Castle Amber does or something like that? Oh, I feel like kind of both. Uh, my dream is to have like three games going simultaneously. One that's sort of the... Uh, vertical aspect, one that's the political aspect, one that's the magical aspect, and then see how they fit together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. You could do that. Yeah, three separate, three separate evenings on your uh, three separate evenings, three separate live streams, and then gets to get yeah. at some point. There's a point of convergence, and then just, everything yeah. goes kablooey. <laughs> at some point, everyone is GMing because everyone needs to because we've all got characters in these different places. <laughs> totally. Now, this is specifically a series that is cited on the list of books that we should read that inspire D&D and that we should go back to and read to inspire our games. N- knowing that this series is on that list, are you like, well, yeah, duh. Or is this more like, why is this an inspiration? Like, where on that spectrum of yeah, duh to WTF are you landing? Oh, yeah, duh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> abso- absolutely. This book, it. It's it's almost like this book is is the design aspect of of D anD D. Okay. Um, the combat mechanics I could imagine coming from here, like the six seconds per round concept, I could imagine uh-huh. being an inspiration for it. Um, it it's so methodical. I could imagine like the the puzzle piecing aspect of D anD D, where it's like here, take this little piece of information. Now take this little piece. What are you going to build from it? Okay, we're going to add another piece to that. And I think the the lack of uh, the the lack of described emotion to me speaks to D and D because um, from my personal perspective, D and D is a war game. Mm-hmm. It is a game that is designed to be about strategy. It's designed to be about uh, 
intrigue, potentially politics, definitely, like how we manipulate and influence other people. Um, less so despite the suggestion of romance from Zelazny actually turning up in his own book. Um, right. Despite that, <laughs> <laughs> despite that um, I, I actually think it is very much more about clear intention and behaviour and D&D is very much about, like, we use a grid, we use a map. We're moving tokens around step by step mm-hmm. to explore mechanically from my perspective the influence of emotion the bringing of emotion and the rounding out of uh the game into full world is by player design not by written design and i think this book really does highlight that i like that answer that you know that's really uh fascinating i think that you really um really caught on design element in a, at a very deep level that sometimes we just say, oh, yeah, I can see how people were reading that and just got a general vibe. And you've really picked up some really interesting, and very specific things, which I think is terrific. Like, I mean, and now that you're saying that, it really makes sense. Like, like that scene in on the first walk on the pattern is super mm. like it's moment by moment. Right. Yeah. Right. And like when Gerard is being pummeled by his by Ganelon, his father, unknowingly, that's also like, oh, this specific grasp, this specific blow. Right. This yeah. is the thing that's happening. Um, which I believe that Zelazny did have some martial arts training. So it makes sense to him, me that he would want mm. to sort of play that out. Like, oh, I, I, he knew some fencing. He knew, I think, some Aikido or something like that. And so he really wanted to say, like, this, this is how this thing happens. Um, mm, absolutely. You know, even like um, mentioning how long, the, the, them trying to figure out how long the Griffin's chain is so they, they know <laughs> yes. how, how, how carefully they can walk around the Griffin. That's very D&D right there, right? Oh, yeah. Oh. And also in that, that section I was talking about, the, the, the last few pages, it's all about... Brand inching forward until, like, finally he's within the spell radius. Then right. he can <laughs> go ahead and, and use his magic artifacts once per day ability. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, it is. It's 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 just so. It's and I think that that for me was one of the holdback points, but also one of the very clear points of this of the the whole book is that it is so mechanical that I kind of went. This world that it sits in is that like the, the world that it sits in is the equivalent to the Forgotten Realms, and then you've got everything that layers on top of it is all the mechanics, and then it's almost like I was waiting for the layer on top that was the emotion, but the layer on top is something that we as the reader are expected to add to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that I only really started to get into the further in I read the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes. I think that makes sense because the, 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 the lore info dump is like fairly far to the front of the book. And so that just mm-hmm. kind of takes you out of it a little bit. And it's before, mm-hmm. you, you know, it takes a while to get back into where the emotion is going to be. And, and, and distinguishing the characters, uh, as you say, Jeff, it, it takes yes. a while. Every time I reread the book, I'm like, oh, I have to remind myself. Other than Benedict and Gerard, who are to me are in my mind quite clear. Um, and it's probably because they have the most... Uh, clear objectives other than the you know everyone else is scheming gerard is like i just want to preserve amber i don't care which one of you does it but as long as amber is not harmed you know anyone else i'm going to throw off this cliff right yeah <laughs> well, and benedict has a cybernetic arm now so he's right. at least got something yeah. to make right. him stick out to me a little bit right right absolutely um, but then the question is will i remember which b name it is that has a cybernetic arm when i pick up the fifth book in this series right. <laughs> like six months from now <laughs> Pro- probably not, but at least when it's <laughs> when you hear those two words together, you'll you'll be able to link them. 
Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the guy who was in that last scene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> totally. Right. So if the if this if this is um if this is the Forgotten Realms and you are thinking about introducing something like the Trumps into mm. and I don't mean the Trump family. Um the Trumps no. <laughs> <laughs> no. X card um, on that one. <laughs> X card on that one, yeah. <laughs> um, if you're in- looking to introduce the Trumps into the Forgotten Realms, how would you go about doing that? Like, what would be the rules for this for this um, this set of items? How how would we do that mechanically, allowing people to allowing us to reach out to other people who have the Trumps? I don't know. Do you have any initial thoughts? Well, I mean, we already have something. We already have a spell that is designed for that. We have sending. Mm-hmm. So it would be probably a, a homebrew of, of sending that is more geared toward, you know, maybe it can go across planes, but only if someone else also has them. Mm. Um, I would base it on sending because the the wording for sending is pretty pretty specific. And then you'd give it a percentile. How well is it going to go? Are they listening? Mm. Right, right. <laughs> Are they on the right. toilet? Probably right, not. Right. <laughs> like, what's happening here? Right, right. I think you would have to have. Um, I always like to use the uh, reaction roll table from you know BX mm. Classic D and D because um, it is a every time the trumps are pulled out, is, there's a role playing element, right? The the mm. person not only is are they listening, are they you know then. Um, are they going to reach out and hold out their hand and pull you through the Trump, the, you know, mm-hmm. the Trump or not? And you sort of have to petition them to do this, right? And they have to yes. respond. And a lot of times they'll bring forward whatever resentment they had for the last time you dealt with them. They're like, hey, no, last time you left me on this, you know, rocky island in the middle of nowhere. So hell no, I'm not going to pull you through, right? <laughs> so so there, you have the reaction, assuming it's an NPC on the other end. If it's another player, then they can play out mm. that scene and say, yeah, I'm going to pull you through or not, right? But if it's an NPC... So I think that that would be an interesting thing to have in there. And maybe depending on which, um, if you, for example, have specific characters, the NPCs in mind on mm. those cards, maybe even have like uh, the reaction is plus or minus uh, for this kind of thing. Like, oh, if it's a, if it's a fellow uh, magic user, plus 5% or a plus one on the reaction table because at least they understand them on each other level. But he's not going to be a minus one for me head warriors trying to you know contact the wizard through this thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I I do wonder about things like that because the way that the way that D&D is structured is like you, you the mechanically you would have that entire conversation and then and then you kind of if it's an NPC you'd have to roll for persuasion or um, deception. Yeah, I mean you could do it completely role playing but I would tend to roll and then give a bonus or a minus depending on how well it was role played. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or do it the other way and right. roll first, right. then explain through role play. How did that happen? How did that go, how did that go so bad? Like why did how, that go so yeah. badly? <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I think either way. Why would am I be missing fun. a leg? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I think either way would be a lot of fun. So Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now, was there anything that while you're reading it, you were just like, oh, this would be a really fun thing to steal and put into one of my games? Um Oh, that's a really good question. Well, while you're thinking about it, I'll let you know one that I thought was fun that I'd like Mm. to steal. And that's the Black Road. I thought it was really cool the way that Martin was talking about the Black Road, how when you travel along it, it like saps your life force 
And like, you just like it based, it literally kills you going down this road, but like, you can't get to where you're going unless you like go down this road. And then he was like trying to like follow it from a, like from a distance. But even that was like becoming really challenging. And I thought it would be really kind of cool to like maybe incorporate some kind of a road road in my, in my world where like it goes to a place that you can only get to if you travel this road, but this road will kill you. What are you going to do? <laughs> How are you coping with this? I thought that might be kind of a cool idea or even as potentially like maybe a curse that's placed on an actual major road. Oh yeah. Something along those lines. Those could be, that could be some interesting stuff to work with. How about you, Hoy? Was there anything that you wanted to steal from this? I might steal the actual setting of Tiernanog or something like that. Basically as it's played out in the book, right? That it's present in moonlight, but then as it gets occluded by clouds, it becomes less, material so some mm-hmm. setting where you have this thing that you need to go to or something that you need to retrieve from the setting but that it is inherently unstable right mm-hmm. for whatever reason and that mm-hmm. the players can guess the reasons why it's unstable and so they ha- they can make an informed decision about whether they or not they want to pursue this thing um but that you know if they don't they don't get that thing whatever it is you know yeah you know, whatever the rules may be, it might not be Moonlight. You know, you might just get the concept and, and put it back into your game. So, yeah. yeah. I, thinking about it, I I would kind of love to return to VR and just say, because I'm such a hugely social player, I would love mm. to return to uh, the, or steal the idea that despite someone not being able to see you, what of your movement are they able to perceive or take from you Mm -hmm. who are you in absence of a sense so remove a sense from a player and see what happens to the rest of that player what happens to the rest of that character how much are they focused on that right Uh, and it's also a great way to help as a gm help your players maybe now understand another dimension of their character to mm. say here we have this person who cannot see you how do um, how are they recognizing you right now? What is it about yes. the way that you move or smell or sound that um, is making them know who you are? Right, right. Yeah. And I think yeah. the, other, the other thing that she really picks up on was also maybe it's interesting, because especially in a class and level game where you you change your powers drastically through the course of the game, is yes. she asks the question, like, who are you really now that the thing that you wanted, you said you always wanted all along, you you, yeah. you kind of don't want anymore? right yeah yeah (laughs) right you don't want to be king of amber anymore then who are you really then right yes and and those npcs who turn up in a in a game and they see something about or in the character that prompts that one question that maybe is going to change the character entirely (laughs) right so she's a she's a real um oracle in the truest sense of the word right not just prophesying something in the future but she's just you know so I think that would be a, a fascinating thing. And, you know, you can do that as a, a DM prompt or whatever it is. But I think that's a fascinating question to put forward, especially if you had a long running campaign and you've seen the player kind of evolve over a period of time. It's like, OK, yeah. who are you really now? This is the, the character yeah. you said you were. And this is the backstory that you originally wrote. But this this is how you played for the last 60 sessions. Right. Yeah. So, welcome. Welcome to the advanced, the advanced lane. Here we go. Right. What's, <laughs> right. Tell me. And that's I feel like that's the psychologist in me being like, no, no, actually tell me everything about your truest, truest self. 
what existential fears does your character have? <laughs> how much do they not actually want to be like their father and how much do they hate duty? Tell me all of these things secretly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the series, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you were to play in a session of Amber Diceless and the, um, and they're handing out the characters from this story, which character would you want to play? I mean, it would be VL. I love that too much. Like she, she, to me, she was just like, oh yes. Um, (laughs) But I feel like I'd enjoy playing Corwin Mm. because I, Mm. I think there's so much when we, when we, read a story that's from the perspective of someone it's one thing to read about how they're reacting to something it's another thing to really connect with what those emotions are ourselves Mm -hmm. and kind of go oh I mean you laughed humorlessly but was it entirely humorless why did you laugh what was the social implication of the laugh why did you do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) how does this work tell me like you're walking the pattern how does it make you feel you're going to be like if time is being this dilated, you're feeling something because you have the time to feel it. Mm-hmm. What is that? Right. Especially Corwin had various periods of like 400 years or more when he's <laughs> stuck on our earth. And, you know, and that yeah. indefinite period of time, then he was in the dungeon with his eyes, you know, regenerating. Right. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. How about you, Jeff? Oh, who would I want to play? Yeah. Oh, I think I'd want to play Martin. Martin. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little... I like the idea of playing like, um, like the the young guy who doesn't really know what's going on with all these like crazy uncles, and um, <laughs> he just kind of oh. shows up and like the first <laughs> uncle, he's like, "Hey, how's it going?" And then you get stabbed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Something about playing that character sounds kind of fun. Hmm. Interesting. But curious, um, Chantal, I'm also curious about um, your experience of reading this book from the perspective of a sensitivity reader. There's a lot of what I would say problems in it, but at the same time, at the same time, it's one of those situations where when it comes to anyone, like, because I can only sensitivity read from my own perspectives and my mm. own, uh, the things that I've experienced or the things that I know. From a psychological perspective, I can look at it and go, hey, this is of the time, especially since we do zoom in so closely to Corwin, like it's his perspective on what's going on. From a sensitivity perspective, I struggle with the portrayal of women in -hmm. the book. Um, I struggle with the the concept of, hey, you now have a a partner out of spite. (laughs) (laughs) She was given to you. Here, ownership, have it. Here, have yeah. this, have this now. The the way in which, you know, uh, sanity, insanity, those, those horrible words that don't actually describe much of anything, um, the way that those words are used and the, yeah, I'd have a lot of notes. <laughs> yeah, like we had of, words like schizoid. Yeah, yeah, which actually is a technical term. Mm-hmm. Um that doesn't mean what people think it means. Uh, and we have, you know, it, all of all of the concept of mental health is almost used in this book as an excuse. Okay. Or a lot of it is, is sort of used in it as an excuse or as a descriptor of why their life is bad. Mm-hmm. 
And that's not really how we see mental health now. It's not how we interact with mental health now or not how we should be. Um, the amount of stigma that comes in with those, with with some of the language that's used and the way that it's used and, you know, the, yeah, the the way that it's used, the the language, the mood. I don't know how else to describe it. I've been searching for the word for a while and I can't find quite what that flavour is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... N- there's a lot of notes that would come through and some of them would be, hey, the energy of this doesn't feel right. Mm. Yeah. It also feels like it's a bit of a um, character development crutch. It's like, why is Brand evil? He's evil because he's insane. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> he's evil because he's, <laughs> he's crazy. That's our answer. Right. <laughs> okay. Thanks. What? I in, guess that's in, all I need to know. Thank you. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and and it's interesting because um, you know that one uh, brand is played just so sort of um, out here, you know, just sort of. Whereas there's so many other elements of at least from the layman's point of view, I find of psychological plausibility with the other characters, right? Like Corwin's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maladaptive, you know, <laughs> traits of of being mm-hmm. very withholding and you know. Uh, apparently post you know apparently post-traumatic no matter what you know his sort of mm. level of power is um and so i think that um Zelazny was i think modern enough he was there but as you say it was a certain time so this is the 70s this is maybe from the understandings that they had in the 70s um and, and as you say where they're thinking about this as a purely a negative thing rather than okay well this is just various people's responses to the world sometimes they're maladaptive sometimes they're just fine, just leave them alone and they'll, they'll be okay, you know, just help them understand what's going on, but it's okay, just don't worry about it, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know. And I mean, to a certain degree, you, and it, it could have been, I feel like it could have been written this way. If it were going to be, if there were going to be a rewrite, this is probably how I would do it. I would say, okay, we have a character who has been through considerable trauma. Um, Why not use that trauma as the reason why we have so much exposition, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and allow that to be what it is and allow us to have to sit in it and allow us to have to discuss that. Um, even if it's another character coming in and saying, hey, what you thinking about? Oh, I was somewhere else. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Instead of taking us out of the story, leave it in the story, leave it in as part of the narrative and let it be what it is. Right. Very cool. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess Viol would be the, lat- the natural character because none of the other characters would be that open to each other unfortunately probably well, you know. but you don't even need to discuss it we i wouldn't even expect them necessarily to talk about it it's just right, like it just goes like into a interior yeah, monologue at that point yeah it's it's in a monologue and so we come out of it and it's oh no everything's fine keep right, moving right. exactly exactly right. <laughs> and it's interesting to the extent that we're in corwin's head but even corwin seems to be withholding stuff from himself right yeah in, yes. the, in this book yeah. Definitely. Right. Which I think we've been told, I think, who was it that mentioned first mentioned to us that we know that Corwin's an unreliable mar- narrator? Was that Ethan or was, was that someone else that was mentioning it? Yeah. I, it was probably whoever our first guest was. I right. don't even remember uh, that. Probably. Was I think that was Ethan Schoonover for the first uh, Amber. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Love a good unreliable narrator. <laughs> especially if they're unreliable to themselves. Which I oh, think no. Is we a, had Mark Bruner was on for Nine Princes and Amber. Oh, I, so bet, Mark Bruner. I bet Mark mentioned it. Okay. There you go. Um, but unreliable even, can, to them, even to themselves. I can always remember who was on the show and what books we covered, but for some reason my brain 
almost never lets me remember who was on that specific book, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Except for when we have a really spectacular mismatch, which is, you know, like sure, I said, sure. I said I I a stated goal of our show, I, I joke about it, is to worst, find <laughs> the absolute worst match between guest and book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on those rare times that that does absolutely stick. Like right. you know, st Strix Strix with um, Well of the Unicorn. Right, right. Well, well those often tend to be our best episodes. Which is probably... oh, that was an, that was an incredible episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, man, that was a rough read. <laughs> um, she when when she started reading it, she actually fully thought that she was like being pranked. That like, and she like, she like asked her assistant, to, her assistant to like look into our show and make sure that like we weren't just like trolling her. Oh wow! <laughs> the book was it, it was rough. Yeah, it was a rough right. Book. Yeah, it, it was um, a read. <laughs> but anyways, we are definitely um, starting to run out of time. But Chantel, is there anything about the hand of Oberon that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to? Um. I don't think so. Uh, I think I'm I'm quite interested to go back and read the beginning of the books, mm -hmm. um, even if it's a skim, mm -hmm. and see what how how we got here. And fortunately, they're all yeah. under like 200 pages, so they're they're pretty quick reads relatively. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the audiobooks are readily accessible as well. If you just like, I don't know if you have like a commute at all, mm -hmm. but it mm -hmm. might be worth having it play while you're driving around. Right. Right. Yeah. So Chantel, are there any uh, projects that you want people to know about and how people can reach you if you want, uh, you know, on social media or otherwise? Uh, yeah, um, I'm currently, uh, as we said earlier, I'm one of the writers on Omens Rising, uh, which is a narrative TTRPG um, that will be launching quite soon, uh, probably will by the time this goes out. Um, and and what's, what's, tell us about Omens Rising. Omens Rising is a narrative heavy uh exploration ttrpg um if you enjoy numenara i would say you will probably Ooh, enjoy yeah. this it's, it's in that same wheelhouse um cool. the difference is instead of having classes or races everyone is human but uh i'm one of the culture writers so you write so we've been writing cultures that we would want to see in a sort of sci fantasy world which cool. is the genre of the game. Um, and it works on a card system. So you pull cards. Cool. Okay. Cool. And how many, how many cultures will you be sort of in charge of? Or is it, is it multiple writers bringing sort of different perspectives of different cultures? Okay. There are multiple writers. Uh, there are 12 cultures. Mm -hmm. um, multiple writers, multiple artists. Some of the art we're getting we're, that is coming back now and it is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's very exciting. It's very very exciting. Um, it's a very it's a large project in terms of we've got a large team um, and we've got a very fully fleshed out team. Um, and we had a con recently. We call it the Omens Rising Con, where we all came together and started to discuss how these cultures interact with the world and how these cultures interact with each other. So all of that will inform how the how people can uh, take on these cultures and sort of see what's left in the world after uh what we call the great decimation occurred very cool. very cool yeah right and uh do you have a uh social media presence or elsewhere that people can reach out to you i do um you can find me at Chantel b on twitter um and you can find me at wordswithcolor.com which is my website um and i am often there posting um, all sorts of things. Sometimes I'll blog about, you know, whatever I'm thinking about in tabletop. 
um, or I'll uh, be writing narrative about the characters that I play in uh, TTRPGs or poetry or I'm also a playwright, so little snippets of play might go up there. By the way, that's words words with color in the British C L O U R. Um, both, both actually. Both, okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have both. Okay, I do have both. So you should be able to type words with color in your strange Euless <laughs> setting, <laughs> you- and you will still get there. <laughs> there you go. Whatever this language in in American, in American, you can still find it. In American, <laughs> yep. yeah. In American, you'll still find me. <laughs> <laughs> That's very culturally sensitive of you. <laughs> I try. I do try. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Uh, so last thing before we get into our social media stuff is that we are, I have to put forward four books for episode. Is that 102 now? Yes. Yes. All right. So I have a slightly themed collection, which is high school classes, which are words, works that I read in high school that I think are worthy of discussion. And some of these I have not read since high school, so we may find out that they're absolutely horrible. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> so, uh, first book is Stephen Brust, Jereg, J-H-E-R-E-G. Second one is John M. Ford, The Dragon Waiting. Third book is P.C. Hodgel, Godstock. And the fourth book is Michael Shea, Nift the Lean, N-I-F-F-T, the Lean. Cool. That's right. awesome. That'll be exciting. So, yeah, basically the way this is working is... Um, our patrons, um, those of you who are who are on our Patreon, you can head on over and vote on which of those four you would like to see be our episode 102. And in the meantime, I would like to say thank you to a handful of our patrons. Um, I want to give a specific shout out this week to David Willems, Christopher Murray, Jeremy Harper, Demo Saklas, Matt Hildebrand, Gabriel Laycock, William Suter, Eric Hicks, Adam Styers, and Vasily Kalaman. Thank you so much for your support. And Adam Styers, thank you for joining us for the Patron Book Club before this, because as a patron of our show, you're also able to uh, join us and chat with us about the book prior to us recording the episode with the guest. Right. So it's kind of a fun thing that our patrons can do. And our patrons also have access to those recorded episodes if they ever want to listen to the patron book clubs. Right. And if you uh, are not a patron but still would like to give us feedback, do drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or uh, check us out on Twitter at appendix underscore n. That's us. All right. So, Chantel, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been a fantastic guest. Chantel, thank you. so much, thank so you. much fun having you on. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>